Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone out this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 7. Today, I'm not going to ask you to stand and read uh, in the text just the way the, way the service is going to work out. Um, instead, we'll cover it as we go through the message. So, but we will be covering Romans 7 in its entirety today. So this entire chapter is what we'll be looking at. To keep that open on your laps there, uh, we'll be working with that. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing and presence on our time, and then we'll jump into the message. Would you bow with me? Precious Father in heaven, you are great. We thank you that you allow us to serve you. Um, Lord, and I apologize for times that I don't appreciate your greatness. But I want to acknowledge that, um, that I am flesh, that I'm human, I'm weak. Uh, Lord, and because of that, uh, I need your power through your spirit, working, guiding, uh, controlling, helping me to phrase, to minister to your people. Well, my desire today is that in my heart, Lord, that I don't seek the applause of men, but the praise of heaven. And Lord, that I preach uh, not for reputation, but for transformation. And that, uh, that Lord, I pray that uh, the name of Jesus is lifted up. The weight of his glory is too great for me to lift. But I pray that your spirit, who is sent into the world to do that, would do that. Let me be a tool, Lord. Lord, if there's anything in me, anything that I have left or done that has displeased you in any way, would you forgive me so that I can be a tool in your hand? And Lord, I pray the same for those who are sitting here. If there's anything that they've done, that they have left unconfessed, perhaps even walking in this morning, would you pardon them? right now so that they might hear from you and then lord would you take your word like a sword and use it to divide in us the things that need to be separated work in our hearts and minds transform who we are so that we might conform to the image of christ may all the glory go solely to you you're the one who has done everything may we see that clearly would you glorify your name today through what is said we ask these things in Jesus' precious name and because of your great mercy. Amen. So last service, we had the chance to have a baby dedication. We don't have one this service. Uh, however, it just reminded me about uh, just parenting, parenting in general. And parenting, uh, you know, I, I'm not where Pastor Mike is where I could tell you I'm on the other side of parenting and I'm at the stage where I'm just counseling my kids and I've launched them well into the world. So I'm still in the process, and uh, you just pray for me that I don't mess them up before it's over with. Well, anyway, one of the things that I found about parenting, at least in mine, is that it has joys and sorrows in it. Um, one of the joyous things that I remember, and I have a lot of joyful things to be reminded about, or one of the memories that I have is just some things that happened when my children were younger. Um, they had this desire, this eagerness to be helpful to me and my wife uh, as a parent. Now they've gotten older, they struggle at times with that. Uh, but, uh, but when they were younger, they were, they, were just, they were right there trying to help daddy out. So, it was, you know, whether I was coming back home with groceries or we had come back from vacation and I had luggage, one of them would inevitably run over to either try to move the luggage or help with the bag of groceries. And, of course, because of their size at the time and just their physical limitations, though they had this good desire in their heart, they lacked the ability to fulfill that desire. So they would struggle with the bags, and I would say, hey, 
I see that that bag's a little too heavy. Why don't you let that go? Let daddy come over there. Let daddy take care of that. And then I would go over and I would lift the burden. I would pull the suitcase and get the things to where they needed to go. So it wasn't that my children had a bad desire. They had a good desire. They wanted to help. But within themselves, they did not have the ability to pull it off. Perhaps you can think of your life in more serious matters than simply moving groceries or pulling luggage in which you've had a desire to do something that is right or that you know that is good, and yet you find in your own life the lack of ability to accomplish that good thing. It was there. It was in there. But the reasoning and the will to pull it off didn't seem to be accomplished in what you were able to do. Well, in our portion of text today that Paul is going to cover, he's going to talk about a similar situation but with far greater ramifications. Uh, If you've been here in the last two weeks, uh, Brother Steve two weeks ago shared the first part of chapter 6, and then last week Pastor Mike shared the latter half of chapter 6 with us. And in in that text, uh, as Paul had already talked about at the end of chapter 5, that uh, for believers that this, this change has happened where we have moved from Adam and old humanity into Christ and new humanity. And then he starts to lay out what does it mean, the implications of what it means to be uh, in Christ and what comes with it. Because he raises this topic of freedom, but he wants to put boundaries around it so that although we have freedom, he wants to define what that freedom is. And so he's going to continue that same topic. Last week he let us know that this freedom meant that there was a release from the mastery and the tyranny of sin. And the reason why we were released by as a gift from God was so that we could ultimately not just live life autonomously, but we were freed from one master ultimately so we could serve another master. And that was the whole goal of our freedom is so that we could leave sin and be servants of God. And he talked about this new way of living. He called it this path of righteousness. Ultimately, he brings in these concepts of What the believer's life is going to look like is a life that is submitted in obedience to God. And so he's going to bring that same theme up, but now he's going to add to it uh, in chapter 7. But as Pastor Mike let us know already, as Paul likes to do sometimes in his letters, is he already lets you know, he gives you the direction that he's going by stating it earlier in the part that he's talking about. So last week, we got a chance to see where we're going this week because Pastor Mike read it to us last week. Let me remind you about that in chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So it's this topic of law that Paul introduces in connection with sin that he wants to deal with today. And these are not mine, but these come from Paul himself. He nicely divides the text into three parts because there's three things about the law that he wants believers to understand. And my my goal today is simply to share with you what Paul wanted to share with his audience. And because we believe he's inspired by the Spirit, these are things God will want us to know and understand about our state as believers in light of the reality of what God has done and what our faith by being in Jesus has wrought uh, in our lives. So here's the first thing that Paul raises in the text. The first thing that he raises in the text is that God has freed believers in Jesus Christ from his law. God has freed believers from Jesus in Jesus Christ from his law. 
if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is a qualification there, you have to fit into that category. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are free from being under the demands and the dictates as of the law, just as Pastor Mike and Brother Steve told us the weeks before that God, by his gifting through Jesus Christ, have freed you from the tyranny and mastery of sin. That's what we're going to see in the first six verses. So look in your Bibles. Let's look here. We're going to read the first six verses of chapter 7. So I'll start off. You can follow along silently in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the ESV just in case you have another preferred translation in English that you like to read. So here we go. Or do you not know brothers? And we can add in here sisters because the term is broad enough to take that in. Uh, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by, the, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. With each of these things, there's so much packed in here, we can't get to it all, but let me try to highlight these main things. So in chapter 6, we see that Paul lays out this question-answer format, and he repeats that same pattern here, and that's how we get our three points, is by Paul structuring the text uh, in that way. And he starts off with this familiar illustration from life, marriage, that we can easily relate to. Of course, he has some different cultural things going on in his day than we have today going on in our cultural situation as it pertains to marriage. But we get the concept. And the point of using this ready-made uh, illustration that relates to most of us, whether we're in marriage or not, we can understand it and get our minds around, is to make one point. His job here is not to take the illustration and overlap it with the application that he's going to make in the latter part of these verses. It's simply to draw one part that's together, and then he's going to draw back to the illustration and then it's not to make it overlap perfectly. But just to get these ideas across, he wants to get across a central idea or concept. So he starts off with this illustration, and he starts off with this idea about a woman who is married. And so it's not any woman, but a married woman. So you have a married woman, right? And let's say this married woman, different reasons would have been going on in their day than our day, but let me just think about our modern context for a moment. If we were in today's world, and let's say we had a woman, and for reasons, say her and her husband were having uh, differences of opinion, and it was just stressful. They were having a lot of arguments in the marriage, maybe about finances. Maybe they didn't like the way they talked to each other. I don't know. Varieties of reasons for why. And she decides to separate from this man, and she decides, hey, this guy I met at work, you know, even though I'm still married, I'm going to start a relationship with him. And she enters a relationship with this man. 
Well, under the Mosaic law, if a woman were to behave in that way, and we could say man as well, but here his illustration is about a woman. If a woman were to behave in that way, she would fall under violating the law because she would violate the law of the husband, or what we would define it today, the law of marriage. She would be violating the law of the relationship, and thus she would fall into the category of sin, and she would become a trespasser because she would break the law of marriage, and she would then be categorized as an adulteress. Now, Paul says, when a husband dies, that totally changes the scenario for this woman. So you got a married woman. Her husband, for whatever reason, passes away. We could name any number of things which we have seen happen in our own world. And then he passes away. So he passes away. He's dead. Two things happen. Her relationship to the man changes and her relationship to the law changes. The law of marriage has no longer any hold over her because death has changed her situation. This is Paul's point. Death has changed our situation as well. And that's the concept he wants to apply to the Christian experience here. But notice, and this is why I say it doesn't overlap perfectly, because here who dies, if you notice in the text, is us. We have died through the body of Christ. Here most likely picturing Christ's uh, sacrificial death on our behalf on the cross. As Paul has already introduced as we talked about baptism and these concepts of being united through baptism with Christ in his death and what was true of Christ, we participated in his death so that by us, by faith, joining Christ and being put in Christ, we are now part of that death. It became our death. So in some way, we died. And Paul says, our old humanity, our old person, who we were before Jesus is dead. We are now a new person, and thus we ought to live in a new way. Now, Paul says that because of this death of Jesus, because we've been united and we've died in his death by faith and being connected with Christ, that death then freed us from our old spouse and freed us from being under the law and its demands. And Paul says, using drawing back again from the analogy, he says, look, you have been freed from the law and your old spouse because God has gifted to you a new spouse. So you had a bad husband before. God freed you from that relationship. That relationship is dead. Now God has put you in a new marriage relationship. And he lets us know who this new partner is by referencing his uniqueness among humanity in human history. The one who has been raised from the dead. There's only one that fits that description. Jesus the Christ. So God has freed us from our old relationship, and as Dr. Kine points out, and I think he's correct here, our old spouse was sin, was a dominant force in our life that we were wedded to that dictated and controlled us. We've been set free from that relationship and the law that governed that, and now we have been introduced to a new relationship, a new marriage to Jesus Christ, a good husband who is able to treat us well. Now, Paul says in the text, if you notice here, there's a purpose for this new marriage. This new marriage is to become uh, the dominating relationship so as to inform how you interact in the world. Notice what he says in the text, to bear fruit for God. It's a concept that he's already brought up at the end of chapter 6 that he brings into chapter 7. We have to just simply remember here that these chapter divisions are not Holy Spirit inspired. 
There's simply human conventions to help us be able to get our minds wrapped around the, the breadth of the text and remember where things are. And it just helps us. So Paul is in a thought. He's, he's working out a thought. He has written a letter, and that's what he's doing. He's drawing that forward, that same idea. And here, he's already raised this topic of fruit and already framed it out for us. And so we should be thinking about things in light of what he's already said. So fruit here that he has in mind is most, most likely this idea of your submission through obedience to God's commands, that you rightly relate to others, and you live a life of moral purity. Those are the concepts of the kind of fruit that should be being produced because you're in this new marriage relationship with Jesus. But then Paul goes on to contrast what you used to be versus what you are now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. What you used to be versus what you are now. And he describes this old way of living, the old person that you used to be, uh, and he, he uses this term, flesh. And if we draw back from he's already used this term in the previous chapter, there are kind of three concepts that come along that roll into chapter 7 based on what he's already been saying, and he's been bringing these ideas forward. Flesh has with it tied to it this concept of weakness or inability. And in addition to that, flesh also has tied to it this bodiliness, this mortal bodiliness, this earthiness to it. And then lastly, it has tied to it this old man, these old kinds of desires and things that are hostile to God. This old life is one that is characterized then when you put those concepts together, is one where, where a person is dominated by their desires that ultimately lead them into sin. And thereby, they become sinful desires. Dr. Keener describes the flesh this way. He says, flesh is the localized self in contrast both to dependence on God through the spirit and the corporate interest of the Christ body. Life ruled by the flesh is at root human selfishness and self-centeredness or sometimes centered in one's group rather than genuinely altruistically sharing God's interest. The old you was a me-centered you. It was all about you and what you wanted and what you wanted to get out of life. The new you is not me-centered. It's Christ-centered and other-centered. But Paul, if you notice in the text, as you look back, you'll see there he makes a shocking statement. He says, in some kind of way, the law aided sin in accomplishing what it wanted to accomplish. Then he goes on to say this new way of life for those who are in Christ is not a life that is characterized by the me-centered, self-centeredness of your life and desires, but it's a life characterized by one who is seeking to live under the rule of God through the dictates of God's spirit. And God's spirit empowers believers to ultimately, as he's going to get into next week, to fulfill the moral demands of the law. Now, let me give you a little bit of honesty of how these sermon prep things go for us. Sometimes when we come to these texts and we're working through the history, the current culture of their day, trying to understand what did Paul intend for his audience? 
and then trying to understand how does that, in light of what he said, with certain cultural parameters around them, fit into a context that's a very different culture, that has a very different way of looking at the world, that even has very different cultural values. How do we understand what Paul said back then comes and is true of those who are occupying faith in Jesus Christ now? And that's not always easy to bridge across and still be faithful to the text. So this week, that relevance eluded me. It was like I was playing a dodgeball game, and I'm not very athletic. That would be Pastor James. And, uh, and I was throwing a dodgeball, and let's just say I was not hitting my opponent. So it was a rough week. But I, as I was in it and I got into the struggle of it, I said, you know what? I should probably ask God. He could help me. Now, you would have thought that would have been the best place to start at. But sometimes it's not always that easy. You know, you're just trying to work it out. So anyway, so I prayed and I, I just, just started to re- reflect and think about it. And I was like, Lord, just help me. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't see the connection. I just can't see it. He just like, you know, that, that, that guy over, he sure is dodging good. I just can't get to him. Um, and then out of nowhere, a scripture just popped in my mind. I didn't think it up. It just showed up like an Amazon package that somebody delivered to my door. I walked outside. There it was. Praise the Lord. Oh, it's for me. And so I opened it up. The text that was in the in the package was Acts 15. And so God showed me the way forward was actually by going backwards. So there's two things that's happening. If you're not familiar with Acts 15, let me just remind you of the context of what's going on. This is the Jerusalem Council. What's happening at this time in the life of the churches, we're in the early years of this message about Jesus moving out into the world. Now remember now, God has had this long relationship with Israel, and Gentiles have come in and out of that at different points in there. And we see in the book of Acts that they're one of the first audiences that most respond are those who are proselytes. Uh, or, or God fears in Acts. And that's kind of like the main place where the gospel starts to take root. But, but this message is about a Jewish promised king, a Messiah, who would come and fulfill promises and deliver Israel. What they were looking for was called the second exodus. And that was this kind of idea that he would show up and set the people free. And, and Jesus does that. Very Jewish guy does a Jewish thing and fulfills God's purposes. But it has broader reach to open up the people of God so that these people from other nations who are not part of Abraham's family by DNA can now become part of the people of God through what Jesus has done. Now, Israel, you can imagine your children in the house. There's something new that's been opened up for you. This is for your family, been promised to your family. And there are these other outsiders who have now been brought into the family, and you're trying to figure out what to do with them because you're like, hold up. You're not part of this family. But we're going to let you come on in with us, but you got to do things our way. You want to be part of this family? We've been the people of God. God is doing this thing. This is our Messiah. Come on in. That's fine. You can come on in. But, but listen, there's a way you need to come in. So there were two different opinions about how the Gentiles ought to be brought in to the people of God. And that's what we see in Acts 15. And this gives us the highlight of how the text becomes relevant and true for us today. Let me show you the first answer. So there's some believers there who were part of the party of the Pharisees of the day, of which Paul himself had come, and he had been a scholar, a leading guy. He was the top of his class. He had come out of that party. And this is what they said. This is how they thought about how the Gentiles would come in. And, and Gentiles, remember, just non-Jewish people. That would be me. I'd be, I'd be a Gentile. And perhaps you might be a Gentile, right? Some of you are not Gentiles. Some of you maybe have Jewish 
uh, origin and descent. And so this would not be true of you. So, so here it is. He says, look, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So some people said, hey, listen, let them come on in. We just got a couple things for them. They need to, one, all the men need to get circumcised. And then the rest of them, they need to make sure all of them obey the law of Moses. If they do that, come on in. You're welcome. Be part of the family. Just come on in. You just need to convert on over to Judaism, and you'll be good. You can be accepted. Peter had a different mindset. He had some different thoughts about this in light of what God had done. And so he, he lets us know what that is. Listen to what he says here. Uh, because there had been debate, so people were not in agreement at this council meeting about what ought to be done. He said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. See, without Jesus, the world would look very different. If we want to have a relationship with God, it wouldn't be the way that you're doing it right now. It would still be by faith, as Abraham had to have, but you, would, you and I would have had to come under the old way, which was the law. So if you had been this Gentile living out the world, you had not heard about circumcision as a male, and you had grown up your life uncircumcised, one of the first things you would have had to do as a grown man was to be circumcised. That is not a pleasant experience. That's the first thing you would have had to do to change over in order to be part of it. Perhaps for most of us, it would have meant a dietary change. Oh, bye-bye bacon. Oh, you got to go. No, no more bacon on my plate. I got to get right with God. You wouldn't have been at church today. No, you wouldn't have been at church at all. You would have been at the synagogue on yesterday. And you would never take a job between Friday and Saturday that would make you work on the weekend because... You would have been violating the Sabbath and working. So as a result of that, you would have never taken a job that makes you work on Saturday. Instead, you know where you'd be today or yesterday? You'd be in a synagogue. You'd be probably trying to adjust your life to figure out how you're going to work all these feasts and festivals into your life as you get your calendar now rearranged around the holidays and the things that were important to God's people that God said you had to observe. And you probably would be wondering about the sacrifices at the temple. You'd be wanting the temple. You'd be putting money aside, donating to the temple fund, hoping that one day, hey, listen, I, I hope the temple gets rebuilt because there needs to be the sacrifice for sins again. And then I need to save some money up so I can get myself over there to make sacrifices for my family and for my sins. But there's something even more Interesting. Peter says here in the text, he says, under this old way, our ancestors couldn't do it, and we can't do it. 
So imagine those who were born in the family, learned this way of life their whole life, and they couldn't keep it. How much harder would it be for us as Gentiles? There'd be no such thing as living water. Churches wouldn't exist. Pastors wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be here today. You and I, we'd be talking to our local rabbi, trying to figure out how to understand the law and how to live it out in our lives, coming from a culture that had no background in it. But the reason why that's not happening today, why you're not there, why you're not at the synagogue, why you're not trying to keep the law, why I'm not trying to keep the law, is simply because of Jesus. He's the reason why all this exists and why your life is not under the old code. If Jesus had not come, you would have to come to God under the law. And your life is the way it is, and you have the freedom that you have today, not because of you, not because of what you've done or I've done. It's simply because of what Jesus has done. That's why it's good news, because you've been set free from the demands of God's law by the work and the mercy of Jesus. The second thing that Paul wants us to know about the law is that God's law is good because it informs. God's law is good because it informs. So Paul is anticipating here wrong conclusions about what he has said about the law in this letter already. We read it in verse 5. Notice what he says here. He says that the law, as the ESV chooses to translate it, here is aroused by sinful passions. Or as the LEB translated, sinful desires were working through the law in our members to bear fruit to death. For his, his listeners who were pro-law, they would have had some struggles with this. Think back about some of the things that Paul has already said that already would have made them been struggling as they were going through the letter. Paul has said a lot about the law, but let me give you a few key things. First of all, uh, one writer said this, most Jews would have said that the law was God's instrument for restraining sinful desires and putting a lid on sin. So by him saying that, he has a very opposite view from what they had. But Paul has already said, listen, the law, if you try to keep it, you won't be justified by law keeping. Well, if you've been living your whole life trying to keep the law, thinking that's going to get you justified on a final day of judgment, Paul says, that's not going to work. That's a problem. Then Paul goes on and says, the law brings wrath. Wait a minute, I've been keeping the law, thinking the law is going to bring me freedom. I'm going to be okay in, in life and all that. And you say, no, not life, death. So I'm disturbed. Then he comes along and he says in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came to increase trespass. Wait a minute. Paul, slow down. I thought you said, did you just say that the law came to increase trespass? I have believed all my life that the law was meant to restrain sin, and yet you're saying it just made sin worse. You could understand why there would be pause. Hold on, Phoebe. Stop reading that letter. Sister, I think you read that wrong. Did Paul really just say that? Can you read that again? I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. It's with these things in mind that Paul addresses the question that he knows will be on the mind of his hearers in light of the arguments that he's brought forth about the law. Let's pick up at verse 7 and we'll read through verse 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the, law, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul's question then that he raises for the behalf of those who are in his audience. In light of the things that he said and in light of the view of the people in his day, is the law sinful? That seems to be a natural implication of the things that Paul has said. Paul gives us the answer right up front. Here's his thoughts on it. Certainly not. No way. Emphatic negation of what is being said about the law. Instead, what he says here is notice the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. Why? Because the law reveals God's will, and by revealing God's will, it defines for us what sin is and tells us about sin. See, sin likes to hide in dark places. But what the law does is it put a, puts a spotlight on sin so that we can see it very clearly. Paul is arguing, hey, look, you think the problem is the law, but that's not the real problem. The issue is what it's always been, sin. Now, in this text, in chapter 7, he's going to portray sin in a specific way. Here he talks about sin in a way that we might not often think about. He talks about it as if it's an alien power or a spiritual being outside of ourselves that comes in and takes control of us. It makes us think back to kind of that, that kind of language that God uses when he talks to Cain. And he says to Cain, hey, listen, sin is crouching at the door. It's like an outside force, like a beast. But here it's like a, more like a slave master that has taken up residence. And he says what the law does is sin is asleep or dead. But when the law comes, some kind of way it makes sin come to life. Sin gets aroused by it. It gets stirred up, and then it starts doing its deeds in us. Dr. Berg goes on to, to explain it this way. The law is a channel for sin, but not its cause. The cause of sin lies in desire as activated by sin. The law facilitates knowledge of sin by setting forth the divine commandments that prohibit sin. For case in point, Knowledge of coveting is first given by the 10th commandment of the Decalogue, which forbids coveting of a neighbor's people or possessions. Exodus 20, 17, Deuteronomy 5, 21. The law, by prohibiting coveting, introduced the idea of coveting and so opened up the possibility of coveting. Dr. Rangi goes on to explain it this way. And he says, and it's not just that the law shows us how much sin is in our lives. Sin has another sinister aspect. In Proverbs 9, 17, we find a horrible principle associated with prohibition. Temptation is magnified whenever we're told not to do something. Let's call it the 
Stolen water is sweeter principle. Of course, stolen things are not sweeter or better than the things we acquire lawfully. The sweetness is a matter of perception. Somehow, knowing that we are banned from doing something like stealing seems to increase our desire to do it. I think back to my own teenage years and, and just to reflect on some of the ways and attitudes that I have and just to paint a generic illustration. So imagine a teenager who's been making some bad choices and who is of the age to, to make certain decisions in their life and a parent who is out of great concern because of the life patterns and choices that their uh, teenage child has been making says to the child, hey, listen, the law of this house is that at 10 p.m. you have to be in the house. That's the law. But my, no, no, 10 p.m., that's the rule. Don't come in this house after 10 p.m. in the evening. Now, you have a child with a rebellious heart. This parent has laid out a law. This may not have been on their list, but now that the parent has made, this, made them aware of this, what is the one thing that that teenager, more than anything else, generally wants to do? Come in after 10 p.m. Now, did the parent saying that make them do it? Was that bad what the parent had said? No. All it did was reveal the state of the teenager's position and heart, that they were seeing in them. What it did was sin lied to them in some kind of way, coming in after 10 p.m. will make life sweeter and richer. 10.05 is better than 9.55. If I just get in at 10.05, you know what? I will feel something special and new about life that I would not have known at 9.55. <laughs> because my parents said 10. Because they believed that life would be sweeter on the other side while they violate the law. We see examples of this all around us. So I shared this two stories. So uh, 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 in the last couple of services, so a few weeks ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, uh, I was at home and my children wanted to show me uh, one of the channels that they watch on YouTube uh, that's a, a science channel. So the guy who kind of runs the channel is his channel. Uh, is Well, he was a NASA engineer. Uh, and then he started doing this part-time on the side of the YouTube thing, but it took off so much that he was able to stop his NASA job and do this full-time. And so he, he does different projects and he gets... Uh, engineers from all kinds of universities to do these projects with him uh, to, to accomplish all kinds of missions. And these are like those projects that you work on in engineering when you're in college just to do fun stuff. To give you kind of idea of kind of some of the things he did, so one of them for his nephews, what he did was he created a sand pool. Yep, it's a pool filled with sand that you could swim in, but it wasn't water. And he used these uh, properties, I guess, out of physics, and he talked about it. I don't remember all the stuff, but you could get in it and move around in the sand like you were in water. That was really neat. Another one that he did was, because he liked to play Nerf guns, so he built this huge Nerf gun like this big, and he was running around shooting his nephews with it. You can imagine the fun in that. But the one that caught my most interest that was really fascinating to me was the glitter bomb. The glitter bomb, the glitter bomb. So let me first tell you a little bit about the, the inspiration for this device that he invented. So um, around Christmas time, he had noticed and he had experienced in his own life um, this kind of thought that some people have that the best sales are on other people's porches 
and mailboxes. They believe that uh, if they pick up items from others, there's no better sale than free. And so they find a way to stop by people's homes, mailboxes, and take items and stuff like that. Now, I have to tell you what my personal interest was in this and why I was drawn to this. I was drawn to this because this had happened to us some Christmases ago. So I was fascinated by the glitter bomb, personal interest. So anyway, let me tell you a little bit about this device, just a marvel in engineering. So this device that he comes up with, he created this device to put it in a specific package, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, and he, he first designed it so that when you took it out of its package, you couldn't put it back in. That was the first thing. The other thing was that he designed it so that no matter which way you turned it, he could have a live feed and live sound in real time about what was going on. And then he could have GPS tracking on your location while you had the device. Now that just starts off. But let me tell you the fun stuff. When you would open the package, immediately glitter would explode in your house every few seconds. <laughs> Boom. 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 Like Fourth of July kind of stuff. That wasn't all that happened, though. Along with the pretty lights, there was a scent, an aroma of a skunk <laughs> that came out at the same rhythm. Boom, spray, boom, spray. In addition to that, a voice would come on that he had pre-recorded, and he could actually link into it at any point and start talking to the people directly. But he had a pre-recording that came out and said, you know you just did wrong. You know you'd have messed up, right? And then he would go into a countdown, 10, 9. So people, some people thought that it was a bomb about to explode. So you can imagine their reaction. So he packaged it up in this, the well, best way for me to describe it, in his package that looked like wireless Beats headphones. And so you can imagine the variety of people that took this gift home. There's lots of different families, but on this particular one, it was a lady, and this one was interesting to me because of the conversation that was had around the gift. So they get the box home. They're there, and it's a whole family thing, almost like Aiken. I got something stolen. Everybody comes to see. We all gather together around a stolen item that we all know is stolen. Mom is sitting down. Dad's standing in the background. The kids are gathered around. They all watch, and you watching them watch it. And so they're watching it, right? And the, 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 the son says to the mother, hmm, stealing feels good. And the mother says to him, don't brag now, but mama had to get herself something for Christmas. And she pulls off the package. And boom, <laughs> spray. And the countdown started. You can imagine what that reaction was, was like. She said a few things that I won't repeat. <laughs> Why did she end up doing that? Because sin had deceived her. But she's not the only one. We see it around us all the time. Sometimes it looks like people hit a rough patch in their marriage. 
not talking about abuse here. I'm just talking about, hey, we can't get along about finances. We can't agree. We don't seem to like the same things. We're arguing, and we decide we, not, we, we don't want to work it out. So we say, you know what? I'm going to part ways with you because I'm going to go out here and find me somebody who appreciates me. So even though we're still married, we start a relationship with Mr. Friend or Mrs. Friend at work. And we believe if I had this new relationship, it's going to validate me, make me feel like something. And ultimately, what we find at the end of all of it is really just heartache and sorrow. There's some people who overwork to the neglect of their family, relationships, and other important relationships in their life, saying to themselves, if I could just earn a little more, if I could just save a little more, we'll be happy and we'll be secure. But when they get to the other side, what they find ultimately is emptiness and misery. And sometimes at Christmas, people steal things, and they don't always get what they think they're going to get. See, people live in all kind of patterns of sin in their life, believing they're going to find what they want, or ultimately, really deep down, we go right back to the garden. They believe that I can live the way I want, I can make the decisions I want, because no one is going to ultimately hold me accountable for the way that I have lived my life because I am self-autonomous. And they may get away with it in this life. They may live to be 80, 90, 100 years old, maybe 105. But inevitably, the days pass quickly, and they seem too few when they have passed. They close their eyes in death. They step out of their bodies, and there they run into God. And in that moment, they discover they're not the creator of the universe and that they then have to be accountable for the actions and the life that they lived. Consider Eve and her own deception. What I would say to you is you're going to hear lies from sin. It's going to tell you all kinds of things. But believer, don't listen. Don't follow sin. Trust what God has said and walk in step with the Spirit, not in step with your desires and passions and what sin would ask you to do. Paul's point, the law is good because it informs us about sin. But the law is not the problem. Sin is. That brings us to the third and final thing in the text, which is the majority of our verses. God's law, though good, and it does inform us, does not transform us. God's law is good and does inform us, but it does not transform us. Let's look at this in the final verses. We'll pick up at 13 and finish out the chapter. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own action. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing dwells, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or principle or rule that when I want to do do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another rule of principle waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 13, you'll notice right there, he starts off with the word good. He's already said what is good. The law is good. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Here he's using uh, that to uh, this description to talk about, bring forward that which he wants to see. The law is a good thing. So his second question becomes, does the good law bring death? To people. And Paul's answers right up front again is the same one. That conclusion, if you want to come to that implication, wrong. That's not what I'm saying here. That's not what I'm implying by my view and things that I'm saying about the law. The law, as he said earlier, was what could bring life. If you would keep it in its entirety, you could find life. Think here solely of one person, Jesus. But what the law ultimately does is one of God's purposes was to reveal, because we're all flawed, that sin is present in the world and sin is a really bad thing. And so the law did that. Paul says it was not the law that caused death. The problem was the state of the person that he describes in these verses. Look at the text and how he talks about it. It can get you a little tongue-tied in there between I do not, I did want, you know, that kind of stuff. But this is the message that he gets across. The person is powerless on their own to overcome sin. Here referring back to these passions that drive us, these desires that are, that are greater than what we're able to tame so that even though I might in my mind know that I ought not to do that, the passions lead me into sinful actions because they're greater than what I can control. And as a result, I violate the law. And because I break the law that was supposed to bring life, but because I violate the law and it has a penalty, I bring death. But the problem is not the law. The problem is me. But the way Paul paints the person in this text, he paints them not as a person who's complicit in sin, but here on this particular case, he uses it because of the way he's been arguing things. He paints a picture where, as I said earlier, sin is a foreign power that has taken up residence in me, and sin is a master, and I'm either the victim or I am a slave to a master. And that master is sin. Notice how in the text he keeps saying that the inner person reason sees the law of God as good even conforms and says in my mind, that is a good thing what God is saying, but I can't do it. My desires, my passions, and because I believe the lies of sin are too great for me to overcome, 
on my own. And so what I see me executing with my body, with my tongue, with my feet, with my hands, what I'm living out as I interact with others is sinful ways of, of doing that. The way that Paul kind of talks about this reminds me of a person who has an addiction in their life. And I don't know if you've ever had a family member who has had an, a, a, an addiction in their life that is deadly. If you'll notice about them, they may in their mind, when they've gotten to a point in the addiction, that they no longer have control. Are they sinning? Yes. But there's a power that's at work in them that seems to be greater than their will. They can say to you, I know what it is to do right, and yet turn around and do the very thing that they just told you they shouldn't do. That's the kind of picture or imagery we have here because Paul has been talking about that we are slaves to sin. That we are slaves to sin. Um, so in framing this out, what Paul does is one of the things that he brings out by doing that is the weakness that's in God's law. If we look at the text, one of the things that we notice as observations in the text is how he talks about the eye uh, conforming to in the mind and reason that, hey, listen, God has given something good, but I just don't have the ability to do it. So I recognize the law is good. I know what the law says, but I don't have the ability to perform it so that I can do it. But notice what he doesn't say in the text. Though he has the law of God and he knows that it's good, the law never comes to his aid to help him. The law tells him what the problem is, but it never gives him the power to overcome it. He's going to state this succinctly at the beginning of the next chapter. The law is good, but it cannot help me. And so then at the end of verse chapter 7, verse 20, 24, 25, you'll notice that he cries out there in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm in a state of helplessness. I don't have the power within myself, even if the desire is there to do good, I cannot free myself from my master who dictates my actions and controls me. See, sin is present in the world, and it's because of that and because sin dwells, as Paul says here, in me, then I find myself failing to keep God's good law. And the point that Paul ultimately gets to is he's setting us up for Romans chapter 8, in which he's saying that you recognize, this person recognizes, they need help from outside. Don't let anyone lie to you and tell you the power that you have is in you. No, the power is outside of you, and you got to get that power not from yourself or your neighbor, but from God who is able to get, get it to you. And Paul here ties a nice knot between here and the next chapter by giving us a foreshadowing of what he's going to talk about next. Notice what he says in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one who breaks sin's power in our life, the one who brings the power we don't have to overcome these desires that overtake us despite knowing what is right and what is good and gives us the power to overcome that is none other than Jesus, because he befrees the believer from the power of sin and from the condemnation that would come through the law. 
as we read in verse 6 earlier, Paul has already talked about this, that through Jesus, because when Jesus died and was raised and was glorified and went up to heaven, he was able to receive from the Father the promise of the Old Testament from the Father and give to believers the gift of God's presence, the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, God now gets in the fight with you and overpowers and throws out and kicks out the domination of sin in your life so that you can live in a new way. The law told me what I ought to do, but the law didn't give me the power to do it. But when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, he gives to me the Spirit of God, so now I know what to do, and I have the power to do it. Believer, you're not in the struggle alone. And if you're not a person who has faith in Jesus, I would say to you, freedom awaits. Jesus offers to you the same thing he offered to us. Freedom if you will put faith in him. That raises one final question in the text. Who is the I in the text? I'm not talking about your physical body part, but the pronoun I. Who is I in the text? So as I was in my research this week, one of the things one of the professors said who has done a lot of study over the years has written probably a commentary on every book of the New Testament. He said, when you come to Romans chapter 7, you have to remember that more has been written about Romans 7 in church history than any other chapter in the entire Bible. So you could guess that over last week and this week, no matter how much reading I've done, is not enough. That's just kind of the idea. You've got to kind of go, go into it knowing that. So there are many scholars, Christians, believers, who are not agreed on who the I is. And so there's a variety of proposals. Let me give you some of them. I won't give you the all support that I read for each view, but let me just tell you some of the views so you can kind of understand where Christians kind of divide on this. So first, as a Westerner, you might immediately read the I and think Paul is talking about himself. Some would say yes, but then the question becomes, which Paul? Paul the Pharisee? Paul the Apostle? Is it generically talking about a Christian? or a non-Christian. There are other scholars who have looked at Paul's day, and as you're looking at literature and Paul and what he's doing here, compared to other literature of the day, they notice some patterns, and they're like, is Paul, as he has done early in the letter, use a rhetorical device, that is, what he does is impersonates, or he gives someone else voice in the text that people are familiar with by telling their story and telling it from a first-person point of view so that he can bolster his argument by drawing upon a well-known story. So the person who's speaking is Paul, but he's using someone else's voice. And if that is the case, is this Adam? Because there are echoes of Genesis in the text. Or is it really Eve? Is it Israel? Is it just Jews in particular? Is it Old Testament believing Israelites? Is it Gentiles as a large group or a Gentile convert? Is it humanity in general? And is this person at a point of conversion, or is this just them reflecting on the generic stance of their life? I must admit to you, I personally cannot give you a definitive answer on who the I is. I can tell you where I lean right now. Don't mean I'm going to land there. Just tell you where I'm leaning right now. I lean towards either an Old Testament covenant view or some view that deals with unbelievers in light of the arguments that Paul makes about the state of the believer uh, in chapter 6, beginning of 7 and 8, when you compare it to what he says about the I or the way the I communicates about their state in the world in this text. 
may talk to me next year, and I have a very different answer. But I can't give you a definitive I. But what Paul's main argument is clear, whether I know the identity of the I or not. But you know why I resonate with this? Why even though I still see myself in this, even as a believer, is because I understand and can think about my own struggle with sin. And believers, as we know from Galatians chapter 5, still struggle with sin. The difference is, in this text, it is the mind versus the flesh, the inner person versus this dominant master. But for the believer, when you get to Galatians 5, it's not the mind and the individual, it's the Spirit of God who overcomes the flesh. I like the way Dr. Schreiner sums it up here. He said this by this quote from another. It isn't Christian experience, but it is a Christian experience. See, the good news in this text that Paul lets us know is even though the law cannot transform us, God through Jesus Christ has given us the help we need in the person of the Spirit. The law is not the way to go. It's the Spirit because he empowers you to do what God wants that you could not do on your own. Today, we have the, pro- the privilege to be able to close out our message differently and to be able to hear from one of the members of our church who's going to share with you from his own life of a testimony about God's free and grace. He's a member of our church. He has served as a pastor in his life previously. Uh, upon joining our church, he has become a small group leader in the time that he has been here. He has even shared the word with us on one of the weekends. And so I want to invite Brother Brian to come up, and he is going to share with you his story. Thank you, Pastor Ben. You know, it's been said that confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation, and that can certainly be true. Um, But it is my prayer that my testimony today would lead someone or someones to hope and and, um, restoration and healing. On February 18, 2019, I confessed uh, to having a struggle with pornography to a friend and a very short time later to my wife, Jean. A major factor in all of this is that I was a pastor and had been for 24 years. But life as I knew it changed that day and not all of it for the bad. I had been exposed to pornography when I was about four or five years old. I was sexually assaulted a couple of times as a child and exposed again to it before my teen years. And then growing up into adulthood, it had become a means of escape, of medicating pain and loneliness, stress, or whatever it was that ailed me. Now, entering into seminary and becoming a pastor, I found myself doing much, much better until, that is, the stresses and struggles of pastoring my first church caught up with me. I was called to a new church and moved there. I moved here to Pennsylvania, and I was doing pretty well again until all hell seemed to break out and I wasn't doing so well. It was around 2017 or so that, um, truly hating what had grabbed a hold of me, that I finally acknowledged the simple truth, the reality that what I was fighting was a sin stronghold, what we also call an addiction. I was scared, I was ashamed, and at one point I was even, I had even come to the point where I was begging God, either please take this sin from me or just take me. I was confused. How could I love God so much? How could I teach about him so passionately? How could I help so many people who struggled with their sin, and yet I could not break free of my own? And it came to a point where I struggled even to trust God. 
Why wouldn't he cure me? Why wouldn't he remove this sin from my life? And yet I was also acutely aware that I had a funny way of loving God because it was God who said, if you love me, obey my commandments, something I wasn't doing in this instance. And so I know now that I could have done more, but I was believing three lies at that time that terrified me. The first was if I were to confess, if I was to seek help, I would lose everything. I, I was a pastor, and pastors can't have this problem. And if we do, we certainly don't talk about it. Secondly, uh, the second lie was if Jean were to find out, I would probably lose her. And the third lie, I believe, that I was convinced that I should be able to overcome this on my own. I was a pastor. I can deal with this. I have a seminary degree. Come on. Well, I was praying and agonizing. I was weighed down with guilt and with shame. And God started ratcheting up the conviction. Having just come back from a biblical counseling conference where, once again, I was trying to find the means to help myself, I got a crazy scam email that threatened to expose my sin that very February morning. I knew it was a scam, but God would not let me go. And frankly, he doesn't let any of us go who are bound up in sin. I knew in my very convicted and frightened heart that I had to confess it, and so I did. Now, I would love to tell you that the heavens opened and I heard the angels sing after that, but that really didn't happen. Uh, in fact, it was hard, it was painful, and frankly, it still is at times. But following my confession, I had a choice to make. I could either run and hide or I could pursue my God. Well, I chose to run to him, and forgive the phrase, I did so with a vengeance. What was in the dark had been brought out into the light, and I was committed to not going back. So I want to share just a couple of things with you that may help, may challenge, may even lead you to a path of restoration and healing. First, the hard truth. No matter your sin, no matter your struggle, no matter how much you wish, think, hope, tap your toes, wiggle your nose, whatever it is you do, whatever, you know, no matter how hard you try to hide, ignore it, minimize it, make excuses for it, or lie about it, God will not let his children get away with habitual sin. He won't do it. He loves you too much to simply wink and nod about your sin. Consider just a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus put it this way in Luke 8.17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. I knew these verses. And if you're a child of God, the chances are you do too. And so you may be in a dark, confusing place, but I want you to know there is hope. There is healing, and there is mercy and grace. God wants you to be healed, perhaps even more than you want to be healed. He is waiting for you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And while there is so much I could impact there, please, let me just share a couple things from the lies I believe. First, I did lose a lot, but I gained even more. For numerous reasons, I needed to resign my church, and I have truly struggled with the consequences of my sin. And yes, it is my sin. It was my sin. It was my responsibility, and I owned it, and I dealt with it. 
And while I still have my struggles and difficult days, there, uh, there has not been one occasion where God has not provided for us, for healing, for provision, and more. I lost some friends, but I gained others. And each night, I lay my head on my pillow. I rest with a clear conscience regarding this sin. Now, when I confessed my sin to Jean, I expected the worst. But what I saw was my wife break down in tears with me and for me. And second only to Jesus Christ, she has been my greatest helper, supporter, champion, and friend throughout this journey of healing. We've been married 38 years, and there is no more wonderful example of a biblical wife than my Jean. But the third lie is perhaps the most insidious. It is that I could take care of this by myself, that I can cure myself. I couldn't. In fact, something I've learned over the years of my life and ministering to others, you can't either. You cannot overcome sin on your own. We only fool ourselves, isolate ourselves, and even lie to ourselves when we believe we have the power, the will, and the means to overcome sin on our own power. Throughout Scripture, God has given us numerous one another passages that teach us that we are called to be in community in the context of one another's where we work together and find healing and restoration together and also deliverance from sin. The place that God has given us to do this is the church. It is the church of Jesus Christ that believes in his word and that believes in the hope that Christ brings. Now, to be sure, not all churches are truly places of healing. Let me leave it at that. But I thank God living water is such a place. Upon my confession, I sought out a biblical counselor, someone who wouldn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but someone who would tell me what I needed to hear. I had a wonderful experience of going to a seminar up in Minnesota for sexual uh, struggles. And when I came back, I knew I needed to be in a small group. I needed to be in a group of, of other men to, to learn tools and to have accountability to help me on my journey of healing. Now, uh, what was interesting was I, when I started looking, I had to laugh because the very resources I needed, the groups I needed, were found right here at Living Water. We offer Pure Desire Ministries right here. And uh, in fact, we do so even today. They're found generally in two groups. One is Conquer, which introduces us to the truth of sexual brokenness and the need for healing. And for the willing, the wise, and the wise, it sets us on that journey. But we also offer seven pillars of freedom that leads us through the hard work of understanding and healing. And I was blessed to both participate and also to lead groups. Well, some of you may be wondering, why on earth would I be talking about this in our church? Why would I risk embarrassing myself? You might be thinking, we don't really have such a problem here. But can I share with you in love? We do. You would be wrong. We actually do. Pure Desire and other groups such as them have done extensive research, and they've concluded that around 51% of the people identifying as evangelical believers and attending evangelical churches have recurring struggles with pornography. You would also be, a room, uh, be wrong to assume this is only um, a, a problem with men because today the fastest growing demographic is actually women, particularly young women. What's more and what's worse, the average age for exposure to pornography is now nine years or younger. And you may say, well, not my child, but let me ask. Does your child have a friend uh, with a smartphone, a tablet, or a computer? You see, 
you may have this problem. And it's a deep secret. You may think that or pretend that you're healthy and all things are right. But I beg you, I plead with you, I pray for you. You need to confront within your own heart the truth of this sin. And you need to and you must deal with it in and through the power of Jesus Christ. Do it before the consequences bury you. Do it before your life spins out of control. Think hard for a moment. What are you willing to lose? What are you willing to give up to continue to hide, to, 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 to avoid the shame of embarrassment? Are you willing to give up your home, your mate, your children, your job, or as one dear friend did recently, your very freedom? Early on in many days, I asked myself, was confessing this sin worth it? Was coming out into the light the smart thing to do? And again, very frankly, many of the consequences that I've had to deal with have been hard. But I also know it could have been far, far worse. It has been worth it. It truly has been worth it. God has shown His grace and mercy and love in ways I've never experienced before and couldn't have ever described. So let me share with you. God is waiting for you. If you're struggling with ongoing sin, He loves you, He will help you, and he will provide for you just as he provided for me, for Gene and me. And all those consequences that we may be facing, he will walk through each and every one of them with you. He'll not abandon you, and he'll not forsake you. A passage of scripture that I held on to tightly through my journey of healing was 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'm going to read two verses for you this morning. First uh, is verse 10, actually 10 and 11. But the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself, now I love that part, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and, restore, and, 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 uh, and restore you. And to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a prayer? A most gracious Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for your healing grace. You say in your word, you shall know the truth, and the sh truth shall set you free. And if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, there are many things we hide in our hearts we don't want the world to see. But the reality of it is sin must be expressed. It must be confessed that we can find the healing we need to walk in the light as you are in the light. We do need to find a safe place. We need to find safe people. And I'm grateful to know that Living Water is such a church as that. I'm grateful for all that they have done in my life and for the healing I found. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to pour myself into others because, Lord, that is my heartbeat. That is my passion, that I want others to be free of ongoing sin, free to walk with you and talk with you and just live life in the fullest of the abundance that you offer. Well, Lord, we are also going to turn our time to an offering. That may seem like a strange juxtaposition, but Lord, what we give is not just to keep the lights burning and the air conditioning on. What we give is to make the reality of ministry and healing and just entering into other people's lives a reality. This church, Lord, we are blessed. But may we in turn be a blessing to this church, but most of all to your kingdom. And so what we offer is out of our hearts with joy and thanksgiving.